It's certainly not the first, and it's not going to be the last. And, uh, and also, but at the same time, I want to make sure that I respond appropriately because the Word of God is very unique, and it holds to us answers. But it can be easily misapplied and misinterpreted. Hello? Let me give you an example. I believe there's going to be flooding between now and the time that Jesus will return. There's going to be flooding. You know why? Because there's always been flooding. And, but that doesn't mean I need to build an ark. So if, if I stood before you and said, there's going to be flooding, I'm Noah, let's build a boat. Uh, I would say I have misapplied the scriptures. So I want, I, want to, I want to search the word of God and I want to say, God, what's the spirit truly saying to the church? What's God saying to us? In the midst of things that are happening around us. I believe that if we'll uh, listen closely, God can speak to us. We can rightly divide the word of God. And not misappropriate the word of God. So won't you stand up with me? Not to read, but to pray one more time. And to truly ask for our hearts to be ready. In the name of Jesus. Father, we love you and we're so grateful for the word of God today. We're thankful for what the word holds for us. And I pray, Lord, today that we would have a listening ear today, God. And a a watchful eye, and our heart would truly be responsive to your word today. I'm so grateful for it, and I pray that I'll have a clear conviction to minister it. Let nothing within me or around me hinder, Father, in sharing the good word of God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name, and all God's children said, amen. Thank you for your reverence of the word of God. Now, I want to start real quickly with a passage of Scripture that in the times of often times national tragedy this passage of scripture is referenced as indicators and i'm going to say this very respectfully towards the imminent return of the lord now let me prelude preclude this with uh this this truth i believe in the imminent return of jesus christ i believe that there will come a day and an hour and i don't know when that day and hour is of when jesus himself will return to the earth now, there are different doctrinal beliefs as it relates to his return. Some believe that he returns before a seven-year tribulation period by what's called a rapture. Others believe that he'll, there'll be a tribulation period and there'll be it at the, at the end. I, I don't really focus on either of those things. I focus exclusively on the imminent return of Christ, meaning there's nothing that has to happen biblically or prophetically uh, between now and his return. That's, that's, that's my conviction as I have studied the scriptures, and I've preached that way for many years. And so, but as we oftentimes, when you see things happen, both nationally and internationally, we often reference a familiar passage of scripture and make application to it as that these are the signs that are immediately preceding the coming of the Lord. And this is most often the passage of scripture that is referenced is what's known as the Olivet Discourse. If you were here Wednesday night, I alluded to this, and I'm going to go ahead and bring clarification to uh, a little bit and uh, extend that thought some here this morning. Now, what's known as the Olivet Discourse is recorded in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John the Beloved, who laid his head upon the bosom of Jesus on the night of his betrayal, chose not... Uh, by the Jews, and ultimately died on the cross at Calvary. Now, as Jesus is going in this final week, remember, this is Passover week, and there's a lot of interaction. There's a lot of going from Bethany 
to Jerusalem, back and forth. It's not that far. It's like two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. And Jesus stayed at Bethany for a period of time. He would stay outside the city walls and the city gates during the night, and he would return um, into the temple to teach during the course of the day. He's already gone into the temple, and he's uh, cleansed the temple. The triumphal entry has already taken place. And on one such occasion, now remember, this is a narrow window of time. This is from today till next week. Uh, so it's just six or seven days that all these activities take place in. That Jesus is leaving the temple. And as he's leaving the temple, he, his disciples take note of the, the buildings and the temple themselves and the, the grandeur of the buildings. And they marvel at them. They point to them and they reference them. And, and when they did, and all gospel writers record this, but each one records it slightly different. Uh, they, 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 they note how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus startles them all with a response that not one stone shall be left unturned. So it's a monumental moment in their hearts and in their lives because they've watched Jesus come in uh, through the... Uh, through the triumphal entry, and the city was moved greatly, and crowds had gathered, and there was a great cry, Hosanna to the Son of David. In their hearts, they are still believing that this is the beginning of the messianic kingdom. They believe that you have to try to look at it not through your eyes, not through the eyes of a Westerner 2,000 years later. You have to try to look at it through the lens of an Eastern, a Mideastern person living it during that time period with an anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Not the coming of the Messiah as you and I know him. We know him today as a suffering servant. We know him as one that carried the cross to Calvary. But they were anticipating him to bring warfare, redemptive warfare, not redemption from sins. They had not found fault with the redemption of the temple. They had not found fault with the blood sacrifices. They did not know that, there, that the, the blood of bullocks and goats could not take away sin. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? They hadn't found fault with that, but they had found fault with Roman occupation. They had found fault with their lives being influenced by what they believed as pagan men who were uh, influencing their nation with the Grecian culture, Hellenistic practices of the theater and the gymnasium and all kinds of sensual activities. And they were deeply grieved, but they believed that when the son of David came, the son of David would come triumphal. He would come in warfare. That's why even the night of Jesus' betrayal, uh, Jesus said, and he was, saying this, he was saying this metaphorically. He said that if you don't have a sword, go and buy one. He's saying it metaphorically. And Peter pulled out two swords and said, here, I've got two swords. And remember what Jesus said? He said, that's enough. And when Peter tried later that night to start the riot, to start the revolution, Peter did. Peter drew one of the swords out of a hidden part of his cloak and he sought to defend Jesus and to keep the soldiers from taking Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and he knew that that would start the revolution and he drew the sword and he cut the ear off. Remember that passage of scripture of, of the high priest servant and Jesus said, put it up. He said, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword and the God of all compassion exhibited his love through the hand of Jesus, reached out and healed the ear of the man whose ear was cut off. And so there is a messianic expectation. So when Jesus references these events that are going to unfold, 
Again, it is in response to their expectation that the Messiah is coming to bring about the messianic kingdom. Because they said, when will these things be? What will be the sign of thy coming? Or when will all these things be fulfilled? We read it and we anticipate his second coming. And I believe that's wherein starts the problem of applying the Olivet Discourse to events that happen in our day. Because we're talking about second coming. They were talking about messianic coming that they expected at any moment and at any time that Jesus would show forth his power and bring about the kingdom of David on the earth. So that's just, that's my perspective. So let's real quick, let's pick this up. In Luke chapter number 21, then there's the passage of scripture, often referenced, often applied as a prophetic indicator of end times. And that's where I'm saying that I believe, I believe, and I'm not alone. I don't hold these uh, truths uh, exclusively. There are many others uh, like myself that hold these truths that the Olivet Discourse was given to the people of the first century. While there certainly are always things that can be applicable, there's, the, the Scripture's always alive. The Scripture's always living truth. Now, I'm going to back up and I'm going to read a little further than maybe what, I'm going to start in the 23rd verse. I think it is here. But woe unto them that are with child. Now, actually, I'm, going to, I'm actually jumping down. I'm sorry, I'm going to start with the 25th verse. I'm going to start there. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and the stars and upon the earth distress of nations. With perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. And this has become common. You see this passage of Scripture referenced across the interstate, or the interstate, the internet. Because there'll be uh, pictures of Hurricane Harvey and the pictures of Hurricane Irma. And, and so the, there's an application that the sea and the waves are roaring. And men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now let me say this. There's a portion of that's applicable to any generation. Uh, that ought to be. There's a portion of that certainly is applicable to any generation. Because listen, if you don't know God, if you don't know Christ and the redemption that is through Jesus Christ... Listen, you, whatever it takes to awaken you to repentance is a good thing. I'm not saying the storm's a good thing, but if it awakens you to repentance, then that became a necessary thing. And so men's hearts fail because of fear, things that are happening on the earth. And oftentimes, and, and I've just extracted these first few verses, or these verses here, out of this whole context is a passage of Scripture that many believe they are associated with the end of times before Jesus returns. Someone like myself believes that this passage of Scripture was uh, uh, alluding to times and events right before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that happened in 70 A.D. Because Jesus actually said that. He said, he said this generation shall not pass to all these things be fulfilled. And many are trying to say, well, that's speaking about our generation. Well, I believe that it's speaking about the generation that he was addressing it to. This is just me personally. Well, you and I can argue this theologically at a later date and time, but I got the microphone <laughs> and the pulpit. And so, and the, let me show you this real quickly. And the, look, go back to the 23rd verse now. Because Jesus is speaking directly to those that he are in his listening audience. Woe unto them that are with child into those days and that give suck in those days. He said, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon who? Notice this. Look at it closely. This people, the people of Jerusalem, Jesus had a great compassion for. Let me show you his compassion for. He had already wept over the city of Jerusalem when he came down on the triumphal entry. 
He said in his own words, he said, I long to draw you close to me like a mother hen does its chicklets. But he said, but you would not. But your house is left unto you desolate. And you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. There's another passage of scripture that kind of affords some of the similar things that many of the parables that we preachers that I believe misapply the scriptures in our generation is because these scriptures were direct to that generation. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't hold truth for us. It doesn't mean that we're not to learn from them and we're not to grow from them, but it doesn't mean that they're directly applicable to the events that are happening in our day. Again, let me say this before. It's going to rain, possibly on Tuesday, Judy. But that don't mean the deluge is coming. Okay, so let's just, let's try to balance this out just a little bit. Let me take you back a little farther in the Gospel of Luke. This is a parable. It's called the parable of the tower or the husbandman. And let me show you this for just a moment. Just two verses, the 16th and the 19th verse. Jesus has taught a parable about a man that's planted a vineyard and he's built a tower. It's clear that he's talking about Jerusalem. And he said he let it out to servants to take care of it. And they abused it and they, and they, and they uh, misappropriated. They stole from the, the owner of it. And then anytime the, uh, the husband would send people to take care of him, they would kill him. And so he, he even said this. He said, finally, the, the husbandman said, I'm going to send my son. And when they saw that he was the son, they took him and they killed him as well. And here's in this parable, the 16th verse. Look at this. He shall come and destroy these husbandmen. And shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. Now, why? Why? Because look at the 19th verse. The chief priest, the scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on him. And they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. Against them. The parable of the destruction of the vineyard and the tower was against them. Because the, uh, the things that Jesus was addressing in both the Olivet Discourse and many of the parables that we read about in the latter end of the Gospels were to that people, a people that had been exposed to the goodness of God and had chosen to turn their back on the coming Messiah, the bleeding, suffering, dying servant Jesus that would die on the cross. The Bible, John said it this way, Jesus came unto his own and his own received them not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Wrath fell on that people. Later, and I won't go there, remember Jesus now has the cross on his shoulder. He's headed up the hillside. He's through the city of Jerusalem. There's a great crowd of people that's following him. There's weeping and sorrowing of heart. And he pauses and he speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem. The daughters that are following him, the women that have ministered to him and others. And he turns to them while they're sobbing over the suffering that they see. He's already been whipped and beaten with a cat of nine tails. He's lacerated. The crown of thorns has been upon his brow and now the cross is on his shoulders and he is losing blood fast and they're hastening towards the, the, the hill called Calvary and Jesus turns to the daughters of Jerusalem and he says, daughters of Jerusalem weep not for me but weep for yourselves and who? And for your children. He said, because if they've done this in a green tree when there was just a little bit of life, when Judaism had just a little bit of life in it, he said, what will be done in a dry tree? That's why I believe that the events that oftentimes are taken and are misappropriated and misapplied, and many people take the Olivet Discourse as a means to try to create fear in the hearts of people. 
Now, I'm not saying a godly fear is not a good thing, but a panic is a bad thing. Uh-oh, are y'all hearing me today? Now, you say, well, pastor, then is there any part of the Olivet Discourse that's prophetic, perhaps to all generations? Yes, I believe. I do believe. I want to go to Mark's gospel now. Now, Mark records it as well. So, let me share with you real quickly. And I'm going to take it and make it more personal. And I'm going to answer a really difficult question for you. A question that, that I'm, it's going to stagger you. You're going to say, oh my goodness, the wisdom of Pastor Brown. <laughs> Mark chapter number 13 says this. Now, this, this, remember, this is the Olivet Discourse. You said, so Pastor Brown, do I need to rip the Olivet Discourse out of the Scriptures? No. It's just like any other passage of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, instruction, and correction, instruction and in righteousness. We learn from it. We read from it. And we, and we listen to hear God's voice through it, certainly. But it doesn't mean that the events, all the events associated with it are directly applicable to our generation. But this has a universal application, the 32nd verse. Of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the, son, neither the Son but the Father. Here's the universal application. Take ye heed. Watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. Take ye heed. I don't care whether you lived 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or whether or not you'll be alive or someone else that's going to be living 100 years from now. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's applicable to all generations, and that is we all must live our lives. We must live our lives with a conviction that Christ could come at any moment and at any time, that we don't know when the time is going to be. Let's read on down just a little bit farther. He said, the son of man is as a man that's taking a far journey. He left his house and he gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. And he's not talking about television. And he's not talking about the weather channel where you're affixed to it out of fear. No, he's talking about rise up and be who God's called you to be. Live every day to the glory of God. Don't get caught slumbering. Don't get caught slothful. Don't get caught dancing at the club. Come on, somebody. Get, get your life right with God. Live, live for God every day of your life. Be a bright and a shining light. God's given every one of you a calling and a conviction and an ability and anointing. Seize the moment that's in front of you. That's universal to every Christian everywhere. If I was preaching to the underground church in China... This morning, you know what, I'd, I, I could take that passage and I could say, you know what, God's given you authority. Live your life to the glory of God. If I was preaching to the church that's hidden uh, behind the, the, the oppression of, of Iran today, you know what, that scripture would be applicable today. Let's go down a little bit farther. He said, watch you therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh at evening or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning. Let's coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, Watch. Watch, I tell you what, greater than even the effects of the storms that are ravaging the United States is the cultural shift that's happened. More traumatic, more lasting impact, more damaging to our present and our future. And we're oblivious to it many times. And actually, we're a part of it. And many are slumbering and sleeping at a time when we need to be vigilant and watching and aware, and I love the exhortation that Shane gave us a few moments ago when Paul stood strong and he said that if any man preach any other gospel, come on, you got to be able to discern the right from the wrong. You're able to discern what is good and what is evil because sometimes that's difficult to do because the enemy clouds the imaginations of men. And the enemy, again, comes to us 
in a disguise or a mask. And Paul said, I don't care if it's an angel of God or I don't care if it's a robed rabbi. If he's preaching any other gospel than the gospel that you've received, that Jesus Christ and him crucified, come on, then let him be a curse. You've got to know what you believe. Are you all hearing what I'm saying today? You're, and so listen, here's the big question. So that part, is, that part of the Olivet Discourse is prophetic to all generations. Would you all agree? Whether or not, you know, again, we can have a great discussion over the Olivet Discourse at a later date and time. But I have to believe that that part of the Olivet Discourse is an application to all of us, men and women, any generation, the many generations that have lived from the time that Jesus spoke those words on the Mount of Olives to us that are living here right now today in anticipating of the Lord's coming. Here in the, no, there's the question I want to address real quickly. Then where do and why do natural calamities happen? That's a great question. And I'm glad y'all asked me that question. And I'm going to answer it. Now, Jennifer Lawrence, who is the, uh, the actress that played uh, the young, what was her name in the uh, Hunger Games? Katniss. Katniss. Uh, she said it's because uh, we've elected Trump. And all these things are happening now. And I thought, well, that may be so. I can't say that or not. But I'd say, God forbid, if we'd elected Hillary, what had been going on? <laughs> Woo! You hadn't seen what could have been happening. Sister, you don't know anything about natural disasters till you saw that. That was my response, but they didn't interview me. <laughs> but, you know, the Bible does tell us. The Bible does tell us a little bit of why things like this happen. It's hard to understand. Let's go to Romans chapter 8 for just a minute. I won't preach much longer, but I will preach some finish. <laughs> Are you hearing me today? I, I feel like I've got an attentive audience. This means something to you. You, you want a biblical balance, right? Because we're going to close in just a moment with a very familiar passage that I think God will use to speak to you. Natural calamities. Where do they come from? What's the source, the origination? People ask the question. It's a legitimate question. Is this things like this, the judgment of God? No, this is my belief. See, I believe God's judgment has, had fallen in the past and days gone by. It had. We see judgment of God. The Bible in the New Testament references the previous judgments of God, such as Sodom and Gomorrah, such as the flood of Noah. But that cross changed everything. And I don't know if we often weigh that in the balance enough. That cross, it was there that the wrath of God. It was there that God poured out his indignation and his wrath upon sinful humanity. Because God looked at all of us and there was none righteous, no not one. And so God laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. And when his wrath fell upon his son Jesus... Until his return, God can have mercy upon all. Are y'all hearing me today? You say, so pastor, where did this all happen? What, what turned the events that allowed for the distress of nations and the tribulations and the, and the sorrows that we see oftentimes happen? And it's not right now, it's a hurricane. In the past, it's been an earthquake. Uh, in the past, it's been a tsunami. In our area, we're not affected by a tsunami. We're not affected that much. Typically, we rejoice with the effects of a hurricane. I say that to say because you know what? If it's dry late summer, which is the beginning of hurricane season, if it's dry in mid-America, sometimes a hurricane brings us needed rain. Isn't that an irony? 
And so what's happening is a, a painful traumatic event for others. I remember 2012, the only thing that broke that, 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 mu- that four-month drought off of Arkansas when a high-pressure bulb, and we didn't have rain from May until September, was a hurricane that pushed the high pressure out of here finally and allowed rain to come. I, so there are, there are things that it's hard to, to contemplate, that it's hard to answer. And so here, I'll, I'll share with you why I believe personally events like this take place. Look at the 18th verse of the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, the 17th verse. Excuse me, no, the 18th verse. For I reckon that the suffer. I love this, Paul is a southerner. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, which means the creation, the earnest desire of the creation. What Paul is referencing is, is that the creation itself is a living entity. There's a life in, uh, at some level in the earth. The earth is, uh, is responding to the presence of something. What is that presence? For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for what? It's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. The earth is waiting for redemption. The earth is waiting to be fully redeemed. The creature, the creation was made subject to vanity. Not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same in hope. He subjected it in in hope of its redemption. The creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. Listen to this. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Say, Pastor, why do tsunamis happen? Why do hurricanes happen? Why do tornadoes come? Why is there natural tragedies? Because the earth groans and travails, awaiting something. What is it awaiting? It's awaiting full redemption. It's grieved by the presence of something. What is it grieved by? I'll just be honest with you. It's grieved by the presence of sin. Here's what caused natural tragedies. Here's what causes, even to this day, natural tragedies are caused by one man. Sin entered the world and death by sin. And from that day until the earth is redeemed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the earth groans and travails waiting to be redeemed fully and completely from the presence of sin and sinful men. Now, I don't know. It may convulse more as we hasten that day. But I don't believe it's the judgment of God. I believe what it is, again, it's the earth convulsing at the presence of sin, hoping and waiting for its redemption that will be restored one day at the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, in the midst of everything, though, let me tell you this. If we were to read, and time will not allow us to read farther in the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, but Paul here addresses some things in context of distresses and persecutions and famines, and he does remind the listeners of the first century who are under great distress for their faith in God. And he said this, no matter what happens, I'm paraphrasing, no matter what happens, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus There's not a tsunami, there's not a hurricane named Irma or Jojo that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's not a tornado, there's not a drought, nothing. If your heart is pliable before God, God's going to keep you. I'm not saying you won't suffer. I'm telling you, even the righteous suffer at times. But I'm telling you what, God keeps us and keeps our heart. Does that make sense today? And nothing is going to keep us. And I'll tell you, even if we read that passage farther 
Romans 8 and 28 says, but God's going to make all things work together for good. For the good of those that love the Lord and that are called according to his purpose. And I'm going to show you that as we close today real quickly. And so I trust, church family, that this has just been a little bit of an enlightening sermon in your heart and mind to just show you that I believe natural disasters are caused because sin is in the earth. And the earth is travailing until its day of redemption, which will be in the consummation of human history when Jesus will have offered up the kingdom unto his Father. Come on. And there's a full restoration. And the beast and the false prophet and the devil are cast into a lake that burneth fire and brimstone. And every person that stood before God and every name that is not found written in the Lamb's book of life is cast into a lake that burneth with fire and brimstone. And God puts that all away and moves that all out of sight. And he wipes every tear from our eyes and he restores the earth to its beautiful, pristine origin as we saw in the Genesis. Come on, somebody. And it hastens and it awaits that day. What do we do? We must set our hearts to simply be a light in the midst of darkness. That's what the church has got to be. Let me show you in closing. Time's not going to allow me to go but to maybe one passage of Scripture, one verse of Scripture in closing here today. But Paul the Apostle, it's in Acts chapter number 27. Paul the Apostle was taken prisoner after having been captured at Jerusalem. And I'm closing with this real quickly. And he's been handed over to the Romans, and he's gone from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And from Caesarea, which is a, uh, uh, a city on the seacoast just outside uh, on, the, on the eastern or the western side of, of Israel. And from there, he's been given uh, transport, headed to Rome, from where he's going to potentially stand trial before the Caesar. And so when they load him up and uh, they actually go from there to Caesarea to Crete. And while in Crete, something grieves Paul. You read this on your own later. It's in Acts 27. Something grieves Paul. He said, I, I feel something. I tell you what, the, church, the world, if the world would listen to the voice of the church. Paul says, something's not right with this voyage. He said, I feel like this is dangerous and he whispered to the captain and said, you know what? Now's not the time to leave. But the captain said, no, let's go ahead and go on. And so they launch out and they're in the Mediterranean Sea. And the Bible says a soft wind blew. And I'm sure the captain is going, that old foolish apostle, that aged preacher, that rabbi, that zealous man, he doesn't know anything. Beautiful sun shining. The sails are soft winds blowing. They're moving. They're hastening towards Rome. Until one day they look up. And a cloud begins to form. And darkness begins to come. And the winds grow stronger and stronger. And the waves grow higher and higher. And eventually the, the, the ship with 276 souls. Are caught in a hurricane. In the Mediterranean Sea. And they did everything possible to get out of it. And they could not get out of it. And that thing moved all around in the Mediterranean. And they did. They, they started throwing things in the sea. Pagan men were crying out to their pagan deity for deliverance. People's heart as, was failing. Even the beloved Luke who wrote the gospel or the book of Acts said this right here. He said, we had lost all hope. That we'd be saved. But then one day. Paul stood in the midst. Called every crew member on board. And the captain and the centurion. And he said guys I got a, I got a word for you. 
I just say, Pastor, what's going to happen in the middle of the storm? You know what? We need the church to have a word for people that are affected by it. And Paul said this right here. He said, he said guys, he said, we've been caught in this storm for 14 days. We've not seen the light of the sun for 14 days. But he said, but I want you to know that this very night, an angel stood by me. You know what? I'm not going to fear about my daughter in Lakeland, Florida, because I believe that that same angel, come on somebody, that that same spirit of protection is available to the children of God. And Paul said these words. He said, an angel of my God, whom I love and whom I serve, he stood by me this very night while you were hiding in fear and fretting and offering sacrifice to a pagan deity. God whispered in my ear through an angel, and he said, fear not, Paul. There's those words again, fear not. Paul, fear not, church family. God is with us. God's going to keep us, and God's going to keep you, and he's going to keep your loved ones. Don't despair and fear, but trust the Lord. Believe God supernaturally. God said, I'm going to give you every man on board. Now, isn't that amazing? They thought that they were under the direction of the taskmaster or the centurion or the captain, but really every man was being protected because of the presence of that aged apostle because he said these words. He said, Paul, he said, you got an appointment with Caesar and in this storm's not going to keep you from meeting that appointment. And here's what Paul said. Listen to this. You've got to read this while I'm closing with today. He said, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told unto me. I tell you, that's what needs to happen in the middle of the storm. The church needs to have a word that we stand strong and bright and we reach out with our impact. Paul said, take some food, men. Eat something. You've been fat. They were fasting and hoping for deliverance for 14 days. He said, man, take something to eat. He said, God's going to keep us all alive. He said, now we may not, the, the ship may not survive. Paul closed the sermon. He said, how be it? We must be cast on a certain island. There were a lot of islands, but God said the ship is going to be cast on a certain island. And it was on that certain island there were a people whose heart was prepared to receive the gospel. And Rome, which was trying to mute the apostle and to hinder him from evangelizing, now became a part of him fulfilling his destiny, which his destiny was to preach Christ where Christ had never been named before. Paul would have never had an opportunity to preach on an island called Melita until a hurricane caught hold of a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, blew it off course, and then it blew him all the way to the land. And while on land, he preached to the, God, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the natives, and the whole village was saved to the glory of God because God gave him a word in the midst of the storm. That's what, what we need to happen in our church, in our communities, in the midst of tragedy. We need a word from the Lord. Won't you stand up with me today?